This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars. Premium race-spec clip-ons developed by some of the world's fastest riders. Bon dia totom. Welcome to another Paddock Pass podcast. And these race reviews are going to start coming at you quicker than a hopping Ducati under braking. I'm Adam Wheeler and it's my great pleasure to have made a weary David Emmett rise with the crows this Monday morning to record a show with us in Barcelona before he flies home to the Netherlands for a matter of hours before decamping to Italy. Despite the fact that I've just said it, can you remember your full name this morning, Dave? I can never remember my full name. And uh, yeah, I mean, like the crows always wake me because they're picking at my bones as I uh, decay slowly. <laughs> Basie and always bombastic, it's a pleasure to have Neil Morrison growling next to me. And uh, did you cycle to this little co working coffee spot this morning, Neil? I did. I did. And it was all worthwhile because it's full of the most millennial type of person. And to see Dave kind of stood in the midst of it with his uh, hat on yeah, and a, place, a total look of confusion on his face. Yeah, exactly. It was uh, it was worth the cycle and entrance fee alone. Without further ado, marks for the Grand Prix Monster Energy to Catalonia and round eleven of twenty. Over to you first, Dave, because you're you're just recently fueled with caffeine. So uh, how did you feel about this particular? Genuinely, I don't know how many marks to give it because it's such a weird race. But I shall give it seven, mainly for entertainment value. Neil? It, it, I would say, yeah, because we had um, two really good races yesterday. Um, an interesting MotoGP race. I don't think the circuit of Barcelona Catalonia has always got, is always renowned for its great racing. There's been maybe a handful of, of top races since we've, since we've been going there in the early 90s. Um, but I thought it was pretty interesting seeing the Aprilias fight it out. Yeah, it. Okay. Um, I think for me, I mean, it was an Aprilia show. Uh, with some capability and drama thrown in by Ducati and KTM to a degree. But the weather behaved, the vibe was pretty good. Um, I'm saying a seven. I think it might have been a bit more if it wasn't for the shit show of the traffic on a Saturday. Before we crack on, a quick reminder of what went down yesterday, last weekend. Um, a first Aprilia one two ever. Alessia Spargaro wins for the second time this season. Jorge Martin makes the podium for the second year in a row, Neil. Is that right? Second year in a row. Um, to steal Franco Morbidelli's turn of phrase, uh, Fabio Quartararo won the Japanese championship um, with seventh place. And we had another turn one smash and a dance with the Angels for the reigning world champion. Um, oh, and the Gas Gas Aspar team won the other two categories. Uh, gentlemen, your moments from the GP. Neil? Well, it has to be the, uh, the kind of terrifying moment coming out of turn two, uh, the start of the MotoGP race. Um, everyone was obviously a bit um, a bit worried, a bit scared by what had happened just the turn previously. Um, but then seeing Banyaya flung through the air right into the midst of uh, the oncoming MotoGP pack was uh, pretty terrifying. Um, and uh, obviously he was run over by Brad Binder. Looked like Brad ran over one of his legs. And um, yeah, the moment when it gradually became apparent that Pekka was actually pretty okay considering what had happened I would have to say that that was my moment I think Brad was telling us in his debrief afterwards he was very shaken um, that he had gone to see Pekka in the, the medical center after he retired out of the restart and he said Pekka was actually chilling in the uh, in the medical center rather than writhing around in pain or seriously um, medicated it was um, it was a pretty pleasant sight so um we got to see a video of him leaving the hospital last night on crutches with a bit of a limp, but amazingly, there wasn't even a cast over his leg. It was just a, a plaster, I think. So, yeah, remarkable, miraculous, you would say. 
Yeah, Brad Binder usually does a pretty good job of putting a face on things, doesn't he? I mean, he simplifies things to the point of, like, I, I don't know, I can't even describe it. There's there's not much depth to like Brad's post-race analysis usually. I mean, he's descriptive, but doesn't go into sort of uh, vast degrees of emotion. And uh, yesterday, you know, he couldn't really vocalize on anything else. I mean, he didn't really want to reflect on the race or the technical problem that, you know, he had. It was more the fact that, you know, Bagnaya was all right. And you could see that, Dave, he was affected by that moment. Yeah, he was massively shaken by it. I mean, uh, again, the thing about these is it happens. And I think a few riders said that as well, that, you know, we could have waited a little bit longer for the restart um, because that happens. They see the crash. They go into the pitch. Sometimes they'll see the replay of the crash. Um, They know this is everyone's worst nightmare. This is the one way that riders still get killed um, by being hit by other bikes. Um, it's the most dangerous part. You know, the start is also the da- most dangerous part. Um, and, you know, they they, they go out, the, the, the crash happens, they come back in, sit in the pits, go out for the quick start procedure, race, come back, and only then do they get a chance to actually, start, like, start to think about what happened, start to absorb what happened. And I I think that was the moment that Brad really started to realise what had happened. um, I mean, obviously, I think it was the moment of the Grand Prix. But for me, I quite liked the the last corner in Moto3, the contact between David Munoz and Dennis Onchu. No, it had been a gripping Moto3 race up until that point. I think, you know, we could see something was going to happen. I mean, Daniel Hogar's crash into Turn 10 was pretty sensational as it was, especially for the implications for the championship. I think his lead has gone, his, was halved, basically 26 points to 13 over Yuma Sasaki. But, you know, the contact between Onchu and Munyoth, bad luck for, for David, of course. But um, afterwards, all the hysteria around Dennis. I mean, Onchu is, um, I'd like to know your opinion in particular, Neil, because uh, he's one of these characters, I think, that could become almost like a pantomime villain for MotoGP. Um, since Andrei only disappeared, we haven't really had one of those. And Onchu, I think, is a rider people are absolutely going to love or they're going to think is a bit of a you know dramatic clown, if you like. Um, I mean, his scenes of extreme anger and waving the cameras away and everything like that would just seem very sort of... Um, typical. I mean, as a young man, I mean, it's obviously difficult to control your emotions when you're under 20 years of age. But, uh, you know, it was, I don't think it, he was obviously angry. He didn't think he had any role to play so much in the crash. We shouldn't have had the double long lap penalty, the six second penalty, which relegated him off the podium. But then, um, you know, I think Dennis may also, in public eyes at least, pay for some previous indiscretions. Yeah, quite possibly. Exactly. I mean, it's not his first rodeo. Um, he has got, I think, a lot better. Um, some of his conduct in previous years was always uh, slightly on the edge or a bit over the edge. Um, but I think he's kind of managed to, to reel it in recently and become like a more consistent and uh, dependable rider. Um, but yeah, I think that was just a quick rush of blood. There was a podium there. Sadly, there was just a, a KTM basically in the way of that podium. And uh, to get that podium, he had to basically barge it out of the way. So opportunistic. Um, I can understand that he's a racer and you have to go for that gap, but I don't think the gap was completely there. And uh, yeah, he deservedly got, got the, the penalty. It's the Canaan Softworldloo school of uh, uh, training because, you know, that's the way that they train uh, the on-choos and uh, the, the Softworldloos hooning around cart tracks, bumping into each other on minibikes. Dave, what was your Catalan moment? 
Uh, my moment was, um, uh, I think, Miguel Oliveira up the inside of Mark Marquez in Q in Q2. Um, I mean, it was an amazing piece of riding by uh, Oliveira, but it also showed you just how deep Honda have sunk. Um, Honda have been... Marquez did extremely well uh, to get through to Q2 in the first place. Obviously, he just got a toe off of, Mar- off, off of Jack Miller. Um, it was interesting afterwards that he said, you know, look, I got a, I got a toe off Jack. I could follow him and that helped me. Tried to get a toe off Pecco, couldn't follow him. You know, got uh, got to three corners and he'd, and he'd already lost me. Um, it tells you exactly where, where they are. But I, I thought, I mean, it was great to see. It was really, it was a fantastic piece. Also, because it was like, me go like, uh, dude, you're in the way. Um, I'm just going to go past you, all right? Um, uh, and he went, on, I, I think on that lap, he actually went, uh, went on to take uh, third on the... Um, uh, third on the grid so yeah it just it was it was great to see and it illustrated so much of what's going on um just because you brought it up a quick reflection on honda what has been the visual nadir of the, of the 2023 season for these guys i mean is well, it still I, don't, mark... I don't think we've i don't think we've had it yet <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is it not you know mark giving the bike the bird in saxon ring or just like holding his arms outstretched as if to say what the back in in Mugello, uh or you know i mean on that related to that subject watching joan mir as a case study of somebody trying to deal with that that situation was interesting yeah. over the weekend because he started off giving his debriefs like well we're going to make the best of things and you know i'm going to try and do my job and it'll be a failure if i just jump out of honda now to saturday afternoon where he was you know That's struggling to contain his anger yeah that was one of the that was one of the most upsetting i think debriefs i think i've ever seen um he was very angry very depressed very just in a very very dark place he was much more uh he was much better on sunday but it was more that he was uh, it, it was more like he was resigned to his fate rather than that he'd actually achieved anything uh, yes, I mean that was a pretty dark moment. But I mean, how long do we have? I mean, you, like we could make a full podcast <laughs> yeah, on. Dave's uh, got a flight to get. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Honda's list of uh, of sad, depressing moments that uh, show just how far they've fallen. Um, I mean, for me, the the moment was uh, speaking to a member of the Honda team on Saturday evening, and being like, Mark actually had a really good day. And then that person said, Yeah, but isn't it telling that he finished twelfth? And we're talking about how good a day he had. Yeah, it shows how the, the sliding scale just moves around incredibly quickly. I mean, talk about the, the scales. They're all over the place in MotoGP. Uh, aerodynamic loads and uh, all sorts of increased. The the ability of the Michelin tyres to cope with said forces, uh, you know, are struggling to catch up. Also uh, interesting that we saw uh, Maverick Vinales get the first warning for tyre pressures. Um, this was the first weekend that we saw tyre pressures automatically monitored uh, without a, a manual check afterwards. Um, uh, yeah, it, I, I think we're going to. I think tire pressures are going to be an issue later. At this point, a swift reminder to have a browse around Renthor.com. Brake pads, grips, chains, and other accessories are there ready for your bike, as well as the Imperius handlebar technology as well. A couple of talking points then, guys, because um, we have got some great interviews you managed to snare from Pit Lane yesterday with Wilco Zielenberg and Paolo Bonora. Um, I guess we have to explain to people why was the Aprilia so dominant? at the circuit the Barcelona Catalunya we'd seen them quick also in Argentina of course Silverstone to name just two Maverick Vinales was not really in the race at Red Bull ring but he was fast 
But then, you know, Alessia Spargaro was on a different level in, in Catalonia. We know he's good around this particular track, his home track. But the, the Aprilia, I mean, there visually on the TV, it was clear the dominance they had. Yeah, but Alessia Spargaro actually explained it quite well, especially on Saturday. Uh, he said what you can do with this, uh, with this bike is... He says rush into the corners. What he means is uh, hit a corner with a lot, carry a lot of corner speed into uh, into a corner, carry it all the way through the corner, and then accelerate out again. Um, at Barcelona specifically, that's really important because of the length of the corners. Um, same with Silverstone. With Silverstone, you've got quite a lot of long, fast corners. Um, and if you can enter with a lot of speed, then you can exit with a lot of speed. And that gives you a massive a massive ad- uh, advantage. It was also really where they were gaining on the Ducati because the Ducati still can't carry the kind of corner speed that the, uh, the, the, the Aprilia can. It's also very good in, in low grip. Uh, you know, it, it's good at finding grip in, in circumstances, and this is probably the worst track on the calendar for grip. So, um, or this, well, this is probably the worst calendar in uh, track on the calendar in terms of uh, actual grip course from the surface. Whereas other tracks, I mean, we'll go to Indonesia, we'll go to um, Argentina. Argentina. Yeah, exactly. But that's just because the track never gets used and the track is filthy and it takes a long time. Once it's actually cleans up, it, it gets a lot better. Yeah, a lot of the Ducati guys thought the Aprilias were light years ahead in terms of the traction. But I think what Dave was just explaining there, the fact that they could carry more speed in meant that they were just exiting the corner a bit faster as well. Um, I think there's a few other things. Sounds like... Um, you know, speaking to someone from Aprilia and the the riders that maybe they came into the season pumped up after last year, you know, fighting for the championship up until, what, two, three races to go, um, thinking after a solid preseason that they could fight for the championship. And maybe those expectations were slightly unrealistic at the start of the year. Um, we saw Aleix have numerous crashes in sprints and, and, and feature races. And Maverick wasn't quite delivering. And it just seemed that they were working themselves up a bit too much putting too much pressure on their shoulders and I think they during the summer break especially tried to take a step back and lift the pressure off the the rider's shoulders ever so slightly and just a few small details I think has really helped as well obviously we know that the RSGP is a a really solid bike it it's a good handling bike it's almost like the way the Yamaha used to be in MotoGP like it's the it's like kind of like the old inline four in that it's handles well it's very agile um and uh, you know it works at kind of tracks like this brilliantly. Um, also, the top a, a Yamaha, a Yamaha with horsepower. Exactly, Yamaha with horsepower. Yeah, you see the performance on the mean straight. It wasn't like the Ducatis were accelerating by or even able to pass uh, the Aprilias coming down to turn one. Um, and as I mentioned, the little details just sounds like you know, obviously the the Aprilia starts and their clutch has been like a big talking point this year. We saw from Hareth onwards how they were having real difficulties. Maverick was having some difficulties back at. Um, the Red Bull ring, um, but it seems like they've been um, trying this out and working on it with their riders to basically help them uh, perform in a kind of situation where there's high pressure and there's a lot of noise around and it's quite chaotic. Um, and they've also made improvements to their clutches as well. I think Alais told us over the weekend that they have one designated um, department working just on the starts. Um, which is the kind of uh, forensic detail that uh, is kind of needed to succeed in MotoGP at the moment. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's one factor, it's, it's a whole load of things. Um, and also the fact that um, Aleix is riding better than he probably ever has done. 
Um, and he's got real competition on the other side of the garage now. Last year we saw Vinales intermittently, you know, fighting towards the front, but Vinales recently has been pretty consistently there. Maybe not in the races, but certainly over the race weekends, and that seems to be spurring Esparger on. He said yesterday that Maverick is kind of bringing the best out of him because he knows he has to perform, otherwise he's going to get beaten by his teammate. Yeah, <clears throat> I think we'll come to uh, starts later on. Starts to become incredibly important. Um, that's why Aprilia put so much effort into it. KTM too. If you look at KTM, they they're doing something very special with the clutch. They're doing something very special with the with the rest of the starts. When passing becomes so difficult, everything then ends up coming on the start because if you can gain three, four places on the start, those are places that you don't have to try and do in overtaking, which is becoming more and more difficult. So um, Aprilia have done extremely well there. Um. Props to Marit Vinales. Uh, I think you know he's been giving some very interesting comments in the press conferences, both on Saturday and also Sunday. Uh, he highlighted the pastoral side of the Aprilia team, how they've made him feel valued. I mean, we all know about the man's talent, but his temperament um, and his kind of aptitude to be able to string consistent results together. I mean, sometimes even in the same weekend, um, there's always been a question. But, you know, he seems to be... Uh, he, it wasn't quite a dig, but he did reference that past teams hadn't really helped him out in that respect when it comes to just enveloping um, a mercurial talent with everything he needs to, to get the results. <laughs> it was a dig. Yeah, it, it was a dig. But you know. Yeah. The, anyway, the, next week on the show, Lynn Jarvis, everybody. Yeah, the um, most important six inches in racing, the six inches between the riders' ears. Um, so much of the. Glad you said that. I thought it was suspension travel. Oh uh, yeah, that that's. But it's still not. It's still not as important as the six inches, which allow you to actually use that. Uh, um, uh, use that travel. It's so important. Motorcycle racing is so much about confidence. Um, we'll talk about it later when it comes to when it comes to sort of the, the crashes. But confidence is is everything in racing. It's why you see people do well. It's why it explains a lot of what's going on in Honda at the moment. Uh, some of what's going on in Yamaha. Um, it, it's everything. Uh, Neil, you managed to catch up with uh, Aprilia's Paolo Bonora after the race. Um, I think. You know, usually, guys, when we grab these recordings after the Grand Prix, there's a lot going on, especially back-to-back races. I mean, the yep. paddock gets folded down as quickly as possible. Um, it was also incredibly windy. So, um, you know, so, so windy that a, um, a box got blown off of the roof and nearly... Uh, Decapitated uh, and a couple of the Yamaha uh, team it, members. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just a massive rush. It's the uh, Sunday evening in the, uh, in the paddock... On a before, yeah, in the middle of a back to back race is one of the most dangerous places you can be. Yeah, anyway, Neil, you, you managed to speak with Paolo, and uh, here's what he had to tell you after the GP. Congratulations, first of all. I mean, can you begin to describe this emotion, not just the win at Alicia's home race, but one, two, uh, quite incredible? Yeah, this is a, for sure an historical day for us because it is the first time that uh, we see a first and second uh, on the podium, so we are so. Exciting it was an amazing day. Uh, to be honest, we, we have seen the both rider that uh, was that were in comfort uh, were were comfortable with the bike uh, since the the first the first session on Friday because uh, both of them like too much to keep this the corner speed. There is no hard braking corner and uh, both the rider and the bike like so much this kind of uh, track layout so since the start we we 
we we have uh, good comments uh, from the rider and uh, we adjust step by step the setup Dai, to follow step by step to follow the <laughs> Please don't don't put on the <laughs> and uh, we adjust step by step the the, the electronic setup and the vehicle setup to to uh, fit the the bike to the the, the, the rider needs. So at the end, uh, to be honest, we we modify not. We didn't touch so much the bikes. Yeah. So since the start was uh, bo both bike uh, was uh, was quite correct for uh, for the track layout. So at the end, the, this is uh, uh, this is the situation where you when you uh, you feel that you can do something. Okay. So uh, I ca I can't say. I have no words to, to, to say which is our feeling now because uh, thinking about uh, three, four years ago when we struggled a lot to be in the top 10, now we see Chua Prilland in the first position. So we, we have to be proud to be part of this group. Absolutely. Um, at the start of the season, we saw the bike obviously had a lot of potential, but couldn't quite get the results matching the caddies. But we've seen in the last couple of weeks, Aprilia now just seems so close, whether it's Maverick or Aleish. What kind of step have you seemed to make in the last month or two? Yeah, we, we improve a lot learning from our error, for sure. So, to be honest, we, we made the error in the, in the first part of the season. Uh, and to be, uh, to be honest, uh, probably we started with too much expectation from the last year. So we started to be more realistic on our potential after the uh, summer break. But since Assen, since Assen we, we, we started to be more confident on our potential and we, we, we improve a lot in our in our working meter to to give to the, the, the our goal was to give to the rider the to, to increase their confidence on the bike but uh, without pushing them to have the results because we we have seen that with less pressure we can gain something sure. much more and at the end we improve for sure uh, race by race we improve the start the starting phase with the clutch because we teach the rider to be uh, more consistent and uh, to be prepared during the, 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 the race situation when there is a lot of noise around them to be more precise on the releasing of the clutch so uh, was not the same uh, on, on all the race but uh, by, by, uh, at the end uh, in the last in the last races we did uh, we did a few mistakes in uh, Vignale's side on the starting phase but we improved from uh, from that error and uh, in this race we we didn't made it uh, made uh, that uh, that kind of error 
and they did a, a standard start so they can keep the, the position at the end in a such a high level championship, uh, high performance level championship as the MotoGP now, you have to be in the front in the first part of the race, otherwise you, you destroy all the, the possibility to, 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 to be in the front at the end of the, of the race. designated team in the Wally working just on the, cr the clutch and improving the starts. I mean, this is the kind of uh, detail that you're working on and you're putting a lot of effort behind. Yeah, there are, there are uh, for sure, as, uh, uh, as you can understand, for sure there is many people that are, the, that are involved in the project and uh, the, there are specific, uh, specific technicians that uh, analyze the data after all the races and uh, think about how we can fix the error and improve the performance. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Great to see that it paid off today. Thanks so yeah. much. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks, Carlo. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, man. On the subject of the Aprilia's steel, Dave, um, you managed to speak to Wilco Zielenberg. Um, earlier, you guys had done the latest episode of the RNF Unlock podcast, um, which you know listeners can find, of course, on our uh, RSS feed. And um, it was quite an interesting one this week because you spoke with um, Ralph Fernandez and his crew chief Noe Herrera. Uh, you know that was—I don't think it's. I mean, somebody sent us a very nice comment saying it's not that sort of bland kind of um, you know uh, super controlled content. I mean, it was quite revealing, really, because you've been a bit of a critic of Raul, or we all have been, actually, the way that he's approached, um, you know, MotoGP. He was unlucky in the race on Sunday. He had a problem with his front right hide device. Yeah, right? it got. It, it looks like a stone hit his, um, his, or something hit his front right height device, and it locked it down, or right height device, the whole shot device. Uh, so he was basically riding around for a little while with with the front forks locked down. Um, he couldn't release them no matter what he did, and so there was no point. I mean, you, you are... Uh, um, it's, it's nice having a bike sort of stuck on its nose, but it's also nice if it actually has some suspension travel. It wouldn't be a, a MotoGP Grand Prix without Cryptodata or RNF having some sort of misfortune <laughs> involved. But uh, Neil um, Miguel Oribeiro was quick, he was competitive, and he was also uh, customarily droll when it came to giving <laughs> some comments uh, about his weekend to us. Yeah, he was. I liked his comment yesterday saying, hey, there was a pileup at Turn 1 and I wasn't involved. <laughs> must be the first time this year that I've managed to escape something like that. Um, and yeah, it was a, a really strong weekend. Uh, you, you feel that, you know, uh, if things have played out a little differently. Oliver could have made it even in Aprilia 1, 2, 3. It was three Aprilia circulating at the front at one point in uh, Sunday's race. Obviously qualified on the front row. Um, and when the Ducati riders on Friday were talking about Aprilia's being in a wonderful position of strength, guys like Bezecchi were talking about Oliver in that conversation as well um, as uh, the two factory boys. Um, he was having some issues with uh, front tire degradation, serious problems in uh, the sprint race on Saturday, um, which saw him drop down the order, I think, to sixth. Um, and you sort of you're a little worried that that might um, that might be something really serious in uh, the longer race on Sunday. But um, he did a decent job. Obviously, got swallowed up by the two Pramac Ducatis. Um, but fifth place is still a, a decent result for a guy on a year old bike. Um, and after you know the the, the sort of run of just horrible horrible luck that he's had um you know it's good to see miguel back up there putting in the kind of performances that we know he can do we're going to disappear into a quick break but as soon as we get back dave we're going to listen to what wilco zielenberg had to say to you renthal street chain and sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency 
from racetrack to daily rider with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Uh, I'm here with Wilco Zielenberg, team manager of the RNF Crypto Data Aprilia racing team. Um, it looked for a long while like we were going to have another podium for the RNF team, and it was certainly a fantastic day for Aprilia. Yes, uh, yeah, it, it was looking like that. So first, second, and third for uh, yeah the first five, six, seven laps. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, the rear, the front tire was uh, was quite critical uh, for us. Uh, we are not completely sure uh, why only us and not the factory team also the factory team but at least seven eight laps later so it's a question of style and and, and behavior on the bike so uh, but anyway coming from uh, the position where we were you know our target was to do top fives and of course the podium would have been fantastic but uh, it didn't happen he, he bring it home safely and uh, this is important you know the team needs points and consistency because uh, we had a lot of problems uh, the last uh, 10 races basically uh, unlucky etc uh, etc et but also making mistakes and uh, yeah then you need to bring it home at a certain uh, point well, the, the the crash at the start what how complicated does that make things with tires and everything else uh, well you know because it's the first lap so it's a new race and uh, you can refill completely the fuel tank or change the fuel tank and if you have spare tires you can fit new tires and of course uh, if you have used all then you can't so we had a backup and that that, that was important uh, but uh, yeah anyway uh, it can be complicated I have to say if it's middle of the race because then it's a short sprint race and then you can choose other tires but in this case uh, we had the, the medium front and the medium rear and that, that was the main thing and you had spares left over so you could go back again yes correct, correct. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the the start the, the first start looks uh, I mean the, the first one with an A on the inside uh, you know locking the front and, and wiping everyone out that just looks like a normal first corner incident but the crash with Pekka that looks terrifying yes uh, yeah difficult to give an answer to that but uh, looks like uh, something happened because also there was a lot of oil and I, I guess that Peko's bike maybe was not right because normally you don't see those high sides anymore like that uh, but uh, yeah I, I hope he's okay I don't know what he has but I saw he, they hit uh, his legs uh, badly and also uh, he's okay I, uh, from what I understand there's no break with the uh, with the leg it's just you know just ran over it really you know just unfortunate all right um, uh, what can you take from this race to go to Misano? Um, well, I hope a lot and our bike will behave the same as it does here because actually the bike package was very good and was working very well. We know that the grip level here is very low and in Misano is also not fantastic. So I hope we can do uh, a similar pace and race. Is it the corners? I mean, what is it that, 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 that suits the... Aprilia here. Is it the long corners? Is it the lack of grip? Is it the combination? No, I think it's uh, a combination of uh, the grip level of the track because it's very low and also uh, the demanding uh, what it takes from the tires because uh, actually turn three and turn four you spin a lot and uh, yeah you, you smoke the tires basically and our bike seems to be especially on the rear uh, having no big issues with that. Is that mechanical or is that electronic or is that... Uh 
something you can't tell me yeah no i have no idea it's just the behavior <laughs> of the bike it's a combination of that yeah so yeah. but they all four were, were good so even uh, uh yeah all four riders uh, were uh, outperforming and uh, that's it um i think uh, if i remember uh, raul had to pull in with a mechanical issue do you know what the problem was we need to investigate a little bit better but he gets hooked up by the front device ah. so uh, we need to check what really happened but the cable was pulled out so or he hit something on the track because the cable was bended and then it pulled the cable off and then it was locked mm. so we could, he could not unlock it and uh, yeah. so basically he's riding with the front locked down yeah yeah correct well, not all on the starting grid everything was okay but yeah. during uh, riding uh, yeah suddenly it get locked because of the cable get folded yeah and normally that's not possible because it's it's hold in 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 place but uh yeah something touched it out and it touched the tire and then it ripped uh yeah out the the front device and then he braked and it locked itself so uh, and then he had to come in it seems like we always have issues here in turn one at the start is that ride height devices is that are we too far away from the start is the long is, is it too long a run to the start is it yeah, it's very wide and it's a long run so you have to slow down uh, from a high speed to a low speed then the first corner you shouldn't stop you have to enter fast but you can go deep and stop the bike yeah and uh, so you 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 know you're there first than the, your competitor but you are not able you know to make the corner yeah basically and that's also what happened uh, this time okay thanks very much welcome congratulations good luck thank you welcome back to the second half of the podcast Dave, it seems that the circuit de Barcelona Catalunya is going to have the Grand Prix again in 2024. Carmelo Espeleta had told some of us in a pre-event that it was possible, so he wasn't being very committal. But then our colleague uh, Dami Aguilar, who we spoke to pre-event um, again in the podcast last week, said that you know it's more or less confirmed that the Grand Prix will be back there. What what do the circuit have to do? Do they have to resurface? I mean, Peko Bagnaya was telling us in a debrief on Friday, I believe, that he believed the track was three years past needing a new asphalt. But, you know, you did some good investigation over the weekend about, you know, what, you know, the type of stone that is, is, is used by the, the track and why it's got a special kind of character, really, on the calendar. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I spoke to um, uh, someone at length about this to get sort of an explanation of what's going on. Uh, and they explained that basically it's about the, the, the stone. The way that tyres create grip, uh, which is, I still find astonishing, is the fact that when the tyre actually touches the, uh, touches the tarmac, um, it creates a chemical bond with the stones in the, in the tarmac. So it's actually using, uh, creating this, this chemical bond. And the stones which have been used in the tarmac uh, are not very grippy. They're not very good because of the crystalline structure. They don't create the, uh, this kind of grip. And so uh, as a result, what happens is that the, the, the tires are just not, just not gripping and in fact you could see it on the on the surface it, it normally what you do when you get a, a racing line is you get a nice wide black line of rubber being laid down but if you go back and look what you see is you see there there is rubber laid down but it tends to be further out more on the racing line the rubber is actually being picked up and thrown off again so it's being cleaned up the, the, there are lots of white lines on the racing line where the where the track has been cleaned again um that's bad because that means that there's 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 less grip um that's a problem that's what's causing uh, the the lack of grip 
um, if, does it need to be resurfaced? Yes, it needs to be resurfaced, but, you know, do the survey. But can it be resurfaced? You know, oh. financially, is this, you know... Exactly. Thing? The question is, have they got five or six million euros to, to, to actually do it and to, to do it properly? And Bagnai was also explaining that, you know, that it's probably testament to the strength of the asphalt because when uh, a car or a bike grips the stone, it tends to push it and creates ripples, um, which is the case in Misano. Misano has a lot of grip, but it also has a lot of bumps, whereas the Circuit de Catalunya was actually kind of not praised, but people weren't really flagging yeah, problems with it, bumps. It's still a very smooth sur uh, uh, circuit, but that, again, that's because there's no grip. You know, like if, if the tyres can't grip the, the, the asphalt, they can't pull it up and, and put the ripples in. I mean, Turn 5 has been a problem all weekend. It was the, probably the crash hotspot, wasn't it? I mean, you've got a couple of left-hand turns. We all loved like, the hard braking into Turn 10. Uh, you know, I think Alessius Bogrone hit the nail on the head on, on yesterday afternoon in the post-race press conference when he said that the track is difficult, but it's not dangerous. Uh, the, the, the thing is, it releases easily, quickly, sort of thing. You know, there isn't very much grip. And so, it, it ca uh, ironically... You want a track to have a predictable grip. Uh, you want to have a track where the, um, you know, if, the, if you know there's not very much grip, it doesn't matter all that much as long as you know the, 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 the grip will sort of let go. The worst thing about Catalonia is that there is more grip off the racing line than there is on the racing line because the, the racing line has been polished a little bit. So if you, you, you can actually, if you get off the racing line a little bit, you hit a patch of grip and then it can grip and then it can flick you off. And maybe, maybe that's an explanation for what happened to uh, Pekka Banyaya. I mean, the racing layout has been adjusted, as we know. I mean, we had that ridiculous sh chicane for a number of years before, you know, the, the circuit managed to make modifications and revert back to the, the layout that we all kind of love. I mean, those fast two right-handers are fantastic to finish the lap. And turn 10 as well. But, yeah. you know, they're having the long turn 10 is, is a proper motorcycle corner. But, Neil, we still have... Um, hotspot problems at turn one. I mean, it's been there's been multiple cra multiple years of crashes at that particular location, and the riders were being asked on Sunday night by us uh, whether you know moving the start kind of forward and making essentially the drive down to the first turn, you know, would that affect anything? I mean, from the general sort of consensus, what, what did you work out? Yeah, um, I mean, there was quite a different consensus from the riders. Um, turn one has obviously been a, a pretty uh, bad place for first corner pileups, more so than I think any other track really I, I, I can think of on the calendar. Maybe Saxon Ring in the lower categories is a, is a problematic place. Um, but yeah, pileups there in 98, 06, of course, with the big uh, Seti Gibernaut crash. Then last year as well, Takanakagami taking down two others. And then, of course, yesterday where Bastianini was in too hot, um, I mean, you had two schools of thought. One was that basically if you moved the start line 100, 200 meters forward, the guys wouldn't be traveling at such a high speed. It wouldn't be such a, a big um, difficulty for them to, to break down into to first gear to go into turn one. Um, I think Franco Morbidelli was saying this needs to be done. This would be a really useful change. Um, but then you had quite a few other riders saying that, you know, we're the best riders in the world. We are guys that um, can adapt to these kind of circumstances and we should be able to um, deal with whatever kind of challenge that is, whether it's, you know, breaking from third gear or fourth gear or whether it's breaking from sixth gear or fifth gear as it is um, at the Circuit of Barcelona. So, um, 
not really sure if there's a very clear way to, to kind of um, to get through this. Uh, the, the whole thing uh, is a consequence. The starts are a consequence, as I said before, the starts are a consequence of uh, the difficulty of overtaking. The ride height devices, we talked about ride height devices um, uh, Joan Zarco said, look, ride out devices won't make any difference. I think one or two people, Joan Mir, I think said, uh, we should get rid of them, that would really help. Um, but the, 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 the real point about ride height devices is uh, they put load on the front, um, they make it much more difficult to overtake. Then it means you're breaking. You, you know, you're breaking much later. Uh, more aerodynamics again makes it much more difficult to overtake. So that means the one place where it is easy to overtake uh, is at the start. So people are trying to make as much, uh, as many places as possible during the start in the hope of, of, of improving their, their their result. Also because the field is so close, you can actually sort of you know make a make up places. You know that you can do better. Um, uh, better than that. So to to me, the the the, I mean, there is a problem at turn one in Barcelona, uh, but the problem is made much 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 worse by the direction, the technical the technical direction in which MotoGP is going at the moment with ride height devices with so much aero. If you can make overtaking a little bit easier, then uh, th there's just that fraction less stress. At the start, and and they can, you know, you, you can, uh, you can be a little bit more patient and wait, wait, try and make a pass later on. Luca Marini was probably the more frustrated I've seen him this season, actually, post race yesterday, and he was talking about that as well, just saying if you don't get the start, then you're out. And you know, we were saying also between us that you know Marco Bezzecchi really missed a chance to gobble up some championship points yesterday. He was in a similar situation. But if I think about turn ones, then I don't think Barcelona is. To be honest, is is one of the worst on the calendar. I mean, you have look at Portimao. It's similar. It's a it's a downhill drop into a very tight right-handed turn. We don't really seem to have, don't seem to have any kind of problems there. If you look at Le Mans, you have a very high-speed you know kink or curve, I should say, into like a a very tricky chicane. Yeah, but it's also the way that you get channeled into one line. So. Uh, at Barcelona, for example, uh, turn one is quite wide. There's quite a lot of lines through there, uh, but you have to get through for turn two because the bike immediately flicks back again. Um, that means that you've got a bunch of bikes on different lines which really all need to be occupying more or less the same piece of uh, asphalt. You see the same at Jerez at, at turn two because turn one is fine, but then you've got to get through turn two, which is you know the really sharp hairpin. Uh, Portimao, I think also turn two, turn three, especially turn three again is the hairpin but everyone is getting funneled into uh, that one line um, what you need is a little bit more space in the turn afterwards to allow everyone to get through I think but I mean uh, Red Bull ring Spielberg has been a has been an issue as well where it's uphill and then it gets tight and it, and it comes back quite sharply um, they everyone is getting sort of you know sucked in that that can be quite difficult but then you've got the the complication. I think there was an added complication uh, on Sunday, and that was the fact that there was a tailwind because they were coming in there f much faster than they were used to. They were coming in at over 300. Everyone was in fifth. And so it, it, people don't get to practice their braking markers. The I mean, they get to practice their braking markers every lap. but Not in a crowd. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's doing 350Ks, not doing 300Ks or 280Ks, 290Ks. And that changes your braking marker completely. So, yeah, there, there's lots of reasons why it's much more difficult. Um, Dave, you mentioned turn two. Neil, there's some 
uh, not that it really matters, but there's some indication that Pekka Bagnaya's crash might not have been caused by an eager right hand. I mean, we assumed, and also the riders were telling us on Sunday that, you know, it's unusual that a rider of uh, Bagnaya's experience would make that mistake on a cool tyre, but there might be some suggestion that it could have been a mechanical glitch. Yeah, possibly. I mean, when you look at the crash, it was it was very strange and you know you don't really see i mean we've seen massive high side recently from um hondas um and usually that has been the result of some kind of electronics issue where the electronics haven't quite been right you think of mark's big high side at um, the sax ring in the warm-up um but um but yeah banyaya like it, it was almost like the as soon as he got on the throttle the rear wheel just came round and then it bit um and it was very strange indeed. Um, a couple of guys were saying it was definitely a cold tire. I think Mark Marquez was saying that it was potentially overconfidence because Pecco was, you know, riding the best he ever has been recently. Um, he's been doing tremendous work in the last couple of race weekends. And he was saying that when you get to that stage of feeling you can do anything, sometimes you get reminded that actually you are still fallible in some way. Um, but Interestingly, I think Marini pointed out that he thought something weird was up there because that's not normal for you know a rider of Pecco's quality to do that and for the Ducati to do that. And then we saw some videos on MotoGP.com last night, both Pecco and um, Tardozzi at the, the hospital, close to the track where Pecco was uh, stationed for a few hours getting checked over. Um, and Tardozzi said that it looked as though something quite strange had happened. Pecco was saying that he didn't feel he did anything wrong or anything out of the ordinary. I know we've maybe heard that from Pekka before when he's crashed, and it turns out that it has been a mistake of his. Um, but it does seem that maybe something was up with uh, with the Ducati settings. I'm not sure. Um, so yeah, I guess we'll find out more in Misano. Yeah, um, to me, I mean, I'm I'm the cold. Uh, uh, I believe in the cold tire theory. It wouldn't have been very very cold, but. Um, Pekka really wanted to get out ahead of the uh, the Aprilias. He was pushing really, really hard, um, uh, and he had quite a big uh, he had quite a big advantage. I don't know whether he, I I can't see. I need to go back and watch again see if he was sort of slightly offline because if he had been slightly offline, then there's a chance of, with a little bit of cold tire on just the wrong piece of the track, the rear bites and spits him off. Because I listened to the onboard and I couldn't hear anything electronically weird. Yeah, he was saying when he was leaving the hospital on crutches um, that it wasn't just coming out of the second turn where you know the grip was weird. He said right the way around the warm-up lap, there was he, he didn't feel like normal grip levels. Um, so I'm not sure whether he's trying to infer that something with the tire, perhaps, or who knows with the with the setting. I'm not sure, but um, he was saying it wasn't just he he had a few moments on the on the the warm-up lap when he thought this is this doesn't feel quite right. Well, with nine races to go, his championship lead is still a pretty healthy 50 points. We're not going to get a replay of the duel from Mizano of last year. Uh, you would imagine that Bagnai is, of course, going to attempt to race. He doesn't seem in too bad shape, um, but his teammate Bastianini is another story. It seems he's going to be dealing with some more broken bones. I think it was two fractures on his left ankle, also one on his hand. Yeah, both both on the left side, basically a fractured ankle and a and a, uh, a uh, quite a complex fracture in the meta, in the second metacarpal in his in his left hand. 
Um, that I think is going to take a little bit of time to heal. I don't think he's going to be fit. He's definitely not going to be fit for Mizano. I'm not sure he's going to be fit for India, but we'll we'll see. It's just been a miserable year for Anaya Bastianini. And when he does come back, he's got a long lap to contend with as well. So that's going to even reduce his competitiveness for you know a racing return. Um, Neil, I think. If anything, this is cranking up the pressure for Bastianini next year. I mean, he's going to have to come into 2024 looking the the real deal. Otherwise, there's going to be a fleet of people after that, you know, factory Ducati seat. Yeah, it does show you that you have to be aware of what you wish for to a certain extent. You know, the, the place in the factory team is not always the be-all, end-all. And we have seen numerous riders through the years just struggle in that environment. Um, you know, Cal Cruzzo didn't have a happy time there. Daniel Petrucci didn't have a happy time there. Andrea De Vizioso eventually decided to just leave because the ambience or you know the sort of pressure that was being put on him was just not what he what what he kind of wanted. Um, and it's it's a shame really because um, you know looking back at the start of the year we all thought that um, Enea was going to be probably Peko's biggest um, challenger. Um, you know, just fearless right the way through last year, and clearly so so talented, maybe even more talented than, than Peko, but um, it's it's been miserable. Um, obviously not helped massively on the back foot after, you know, breaking his shoulder blade at the first race. You know, that it cannot be overstated how, um, how much that must have affected him and kind of playing catch-up from there is never easy. But, um, you know, indications that, that Anea, who's such a happy-go-lucky, laid-back guy, um, you know, there are one or two whispers in Barcelona that... Um, the kind of high-pressure environment of the factory Ducati team maybe just wasn't working out for him on a personal level as well. That's so what we suspected, wasn't it? Because, you know, everything seemed to be working so well in Grassini. <coughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there are a lot of advantages to a factory team, but uh, you are expected to perform. You're, you are not supported. You are expected to perform. Um, and especially in the Ducati, in the factory Ducati team, there's, very much, there's a massive amount of pressure. It's one of the most high-pressure environment. I think that um, the factory Ducati team and the second seat in uh, in Repsol Honda are the two most high-pressure seats in all of racing. And we talked earlier about what Aprilia have done well with the human side of racing. Uh, Ducati and Honda could probably take a lesson, a page out of their books. Speaking of pressure, what did you guys think about Alessio Spargaro's comments that the race was restarted too quickly? I mean, I, I think it got underway a good 22 minutes after it was supposed to launch uh, with the restart. And if you listen to, and most of the riders had some sort of oil or kind of debris from Brad Binder's sort of splintered KTM. Uh, but, you know, Alesh was a little critical. He said, you know, there was still an ambulance on the track. Um, you know, everything seemed a little bit rushed to restart. Uh, from my point of view, sitting, sitting in the media center, I didn't think it was overly quick. I mean, it was a quick restart race protocol. But uh, maybe these guys do need a little bit more time to, to collect their thoughts, especially the likes of someone like Brad Binder, who's been right at the centre of the melee. I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> I think it can sometimes it can be better to not have time to collect your thoughts, to just go out and race again, get on with it, and then put it out of your mind and, and go on and do uh, do something else. Sometimes it, it can be... Well, maybe that worked for Jorge Martin because he's, yeah. he had to use a second bike, which he said he didn't feel good on all weekend, but you know he still managed to ride it and make a result. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing is you can't really win. At, at some point, the track is clean, the track is clear, 
um, uh, the de- well, m- most of the debris has been removed, or as much as possible, the debris has been removed. The riders are safe. The riders have been taken to the medical centre for a, for examination. Uh, what are you going to do? Sort of hang around and sort of watch the clouds go by for a little bit. Uh, uh, you have to repo- restart the point, at the, the the race at some point. Um, the obviously there's a lot of pressure to get it done within that two to three p.m. TV window, um, which they ran over anyway, but. Most important thing was the conditions were safe, uh, the the track was clear, um, uh, the oil which uh, Brad Binder's bike had, had dumped everywhere, um, that had been cleaned up. Uh, we didn't see anyone crash over the oil, which is a sign that the the the, the, the track was clean. Uh, so now, I mean, you know, you got to start at some point. Might as well do it then. As you may know, guys, we do a paddock note show um, every day from each Grand Prix on Patreon. Um, Thanks for your comments and for following us there. We had a couple of questions, so we're just going to tackle those. Um, On the subject of KTM having another grid spot, which we were talking about coming into the Grand Prix, Graham Barton was kind of reminding us that the Nastra Azuro and um, Honda, HRC in particular, made room for Rossi back in the day. So why can't it happen again for KTM? Any thoughts about that? Well, that was was 20... Four years ago, twenty-three yeah, years ago. Because it's not two thousand anymore. There you go. You couldn't get any. I mean, there's <laughs> a solid sort of like structure on the grid now, where you have um, you know a certain number of factory teams, five factory teams, and then you have a certain number of satellite teams. And basically, it was you know there was a contract signed in oh five years ago, two thousand and sixteen, I think, which kind of guaranteed the 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 satellite teams within MotoGP to remain the same for a set amount of years. Um, that tr- that contract was renewed um, uh, in twenty one for the twenty two. Yes. So we're, we're for twenty two through uh, uh, twenty six uh, is the five year con- uh, period of contract. So like these satellite teams that are doing, but yeah, it was a different era. I mean, you know, that was for Valentino Rossi to ride a five hundred. Um, it was when there were only two factories uh, uh, on the grid. Uh, Yamaha. No, no, I tell a lie. There was three. There was Suzuki as well. Um, uh, but uh, again, I think two Suzukis. Um, uh, a bunch of Hondas, a bunch of uh, Yamahas, and lots and lots of privateer bikes. Also, it's worth pointing out that contract is signed by Dorna with the independent teams so to allow them to invest and work towards their sustainability and, and you know their their longevity. Essentially, exactly, not having to scrabble around every year desperately looking for money, just knowing that they've got a certain baseline that they can then. Uh, because it's much easier to talk to sponsors if you can say, right, this is what we're doing for the next five years. We can do this year one, year two, year three. You can come in, you can come out. You can. Uh, it, it, it makes conversations, gives a lot more of a flexibility and, and, and financial security. I really wouldn't be surprised if MotoGP moved to a 20-bike model with uh, intermittent wildcards popping up, you know, whether it's for... Uh, to assist teams with their testing, you know, protocol or priorities, um, or even just to have some old kind of, you know, still active legends mixing things up for particular events. I mean, you can't doubt the impact that like Danny Pedrosa had in Jerez, for example. I mean, if he announced he was going to race again next year, that might even drive a little bit of hype up around the event. So I, I think you'll you'll see that core grid you know, with these kind of peripheral appearances. Um, we also had a question from Phantom Fellows um, about the American racing team and, and why perhaps more is not being done to promote young Americans into the series. I mean, Sean Dillon Kelly, Neil, is no, no, no longer racing in Moto2, uh, but the, the team have signed Joe Roberts again for next year, so it's not as if they're completely abandoning the idea of helping Americans. Exactly, yeah. Um, I mean, it's a... Uh, it's, it's 
I think the the question um, that you mentioned there, Ad, was was citing a, a couple of talented riders that are racing in America that do have potential to come into the World Championship in the future. Rocco Landers um, was one of them, um, but. I mean, I think the the lesson we can see from Sean Dillon Kelly is coming from a national series into Model 2 is really, really very difficult indeed. It needs... Even Cameron Bobian as well. Yeah, it? exactly. I mean, Cameron was a lot more experienced than Sean when he came in um, to the Model 2 World Championship, but it needs at least two years, at least, for that, that the rider to kind of come up to speed and, and sort of um, show their best. It needs a lot of investment. It needs the rider to be moved from America over to... Uh, Europe um, to train somewhere in Spain. I mean, it's a huge, huge amount of investment. It's a, it's a big lifestyle change as well. Um, and you know, it, it is a shame how things worked out with Sean Dillon Kelly. I mean, over the weekend, um, you know, Sean. I think basically he was um, he had an operation on his arm. He had been having persistent arm pump issues uh, right the way through this year. He had an operation, um, a second operation, I think, on his arm just before the summer break. Um, there was a lot of scar tissue. It was quite complicated. He wasn't able to make it back for Silverstone. Um, he wanted to come back as soon as possible to Austria, but um, it sounded as though the team had a different idea. They thought if coming back from such a serious operation, he needed to be more careful with his rehabilitation and his recovery. Their idea was for him to sit on the sidelines for maybe two or three more races. Um but Sean didn't really see it that way. He thought he was fit enough to ride in Austria and he wanted to get back on the bike as soon as possible. The team thought if you come back on a really difficult track like Austria for your, your upper body and your arms, then things could be complicated. Um, so they basically didn't see eye to eye on that and um, they've gone the separate ways, which is a shame because I don't think we really got to see the, the, the best from Sean. Um, but, I mean, they do seem to be committed still to having at least one American rider with Joe Roberts uh, signed for next year. And um, I think, you know, someone like Rocco Landers, I think he's part of that American Racing Academy in the U.S. So, um, you know, there is, a, there is a pipeline, but it's it's a massive step up and a massive investment needed for that to happen. Yeah, and to me, like, I think the biggest change is the cultural one, having to move over to Europe um, when you're, you know, 16, 17, 18, especially if you're coming over here living on your own. If you talk to some of the Red Bull rookies from Australia, for example, they say the same thing, you know, like it's a massive, massive change. Even someone as experienced as Takanakagami uh, said, it, it, who lives in Barcelona, it, or he lives in Barcelona during the, uh, during the season, um, it's still a huge cultural change. It takes an enormous amount to get used to this cultural a a adaptation. Uh, you know, different food, different lifestyle, different language, different um, interests, different uh, uh, approach to life, different dinner time. You know, it's simple as, as simple as that. Um, uh, uh, I mean, my, my, my dad used to get upset when he uh, used to come to Spain because he liked to have his tea at six o'clock. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can forget about that here. You know, you're not eating until nine. So, yeah, it, it, it's such a completely different way of life. And I think that is um, one of the biggest problems the, uh, uh, well, the American racing or American racers face. Uh, the, you have to f sort of set yourself up permanently here. And just to wrap the subject, I think it's important that the pipelines are still in place, that, you know, regardless of maybe management or 
issues, the way the teams handle their affairs. It's important that American racing team is doing stuff for the Americans, and it's important that Michael Laverty's Vision Track racing team are trying to do stuff to help the Brits. You know, without that, then I don't think, you know, you're going to really be helping riders from different nationalities try to break into Grand Prix. Anyway, on to our winners and losers from from the, the Catalan Grand Prix. Um, over to you first, Neil. Who was your winner? I mean, quite simply, Paco Bagnaia, because um, it looks as though he is still, well, he is still walking and talking after a, a crash. My first reaction was that that's it. His season's over. Uh, he's going to have a serious recovery on his hands after breaking a leg, but thankfully that didn't happen. No fractures after that massive crash. And in the end, he didn't lose out big time in the championship. I think his lead was reduced, obviously, by um, 16 points on Sunday. Um, Jorge Martin is now 50 points back. I mean, no one really made massive inroads into his championship lead. And it looks as though he's going to be at least there in Mizano to give it a go. So, yeah, Peko every day of the week. Uh, for me, the obvious one would be someone like Alesh, but I'm going to say Maverick Vinales. Um, I don't think he managed to score in our MotoGP football match on Thursday evening, um, playing for Aprilia. So uh, I thought the weekend wasn't going to start on a good note for him. But um, yeah, two podium finishes, increased competitiveness, uh, came close to the win. Uh, you know, I think he's he's heading in the right direction. It can't be long until uh, Maverick finally gets uh, the win with Aprilia and becomes what the first rider to win with three different brands in the Premier Class since Randy Mamo. Caparossi. Caparossi. Okay. Yeah, the fifth in history. Yeah, who well, was Yamaha, Suzuki, no, Yamaha, Ducati, and Honda, right? right. Yeah. yeah, he I never won with Suzuki, did nah. he? I think okay. Hillwood. Um, oh God, uh, Hillwood, Lawson, and Mamola were the others that yes. have done that. Right, Dave, your winner. My winner is Alessio Spargaro, not just because he had such a fantastic weekend, uh, but also that podium on Sunday um, is down a lot to Alessio Spargaro. First of all, Alessio's developed the Aprilia to make it a competitive bike. Secondly, it was Alessio who talked to Maverick, persuaded Maverick to join uh, uh, Aprilia when others were really not... Um, you know, when others didn't want to join it, they they were afraid of joining the Aprilia, the, you know, the Aprilia project. Uh, and of course, Alesha also looked after Jorge Martin um, when he ran out of money, uh, helped him stay racing. I think in Moto Three or uh, uh, I can't remember if it's Moto Three or Moto Two, but um, uh, he supported Martin, kept him racing, kept him on the grid. So that entire podium was very much Alicia Spargo had a much bigger role in the entire podium than normal so yeah um yeah also home race the whole just everything for him he might not like it but he is pretty much a spokesman for the premier class you know of Mar Marquez kind of sidelined in terms of relevance for the results uh you know you you'd argue that Aspargaro is perhaps you know one of the most high profile riders in the series currently yeah and he is also quite uh, outspoken the, the one thing that I didn't like about the podium <laughs> is uh it was all very nice and friendly and stuff and uh, it's not uh, it's, it's not what we tune in for we want we want a bit of needle don't worry Dennis on is on the way Dave <laughs> Um, when we come to our win, uh, losers, in fact, I'm going to go first. I'm tempted to say Tony Arbolino or Celestino Vietti, Neil, just for the spectacular reverse that we sometimes see in Moto2. Um, those guys really, really struggling, it seems, with grip more than others in that particular category. But I'm just going to say Brad Binder, um, in one ways, he was a winner for, you know, being a completely uh, unwilling victim in the whole mess, you know, of the turn two. Um, and, you know, he there was no injury concerns, big ones, thankfully. But then, you know, Binder's uh, mechanical DNF 
Um, I think Paulo Sporago had a clutch problem with the gas gas, but we don't know the reason that Brad sort of coasted to a halt. But that was another chance for him to really put some points in the bank and close up to the top three of the championship. So, um, yeah, just for that uh, moment of bad luck to, to go with the, the odd piece of good fortune, uh, I'm going to say Brad. Uh, Dave, you're a loser. Uh, I almost chose uh, Aaron Connett because he managed to finish second in a Moto2 racing. Um, <laughs> thanks to some brilliant riding by uh, Jake Dixon, I have to say. Uh, no, my loser is Paul Spargo because Paul is very much on the hot seat. Um, again, this was nothing he could do. He had a he had a decent weekend. You know, he was shown that he's competitive. He's obviously still has sp- speed, but he needs to start getting results, and he's just not getting results. Yeah, that's a great shout. Maybe we can tackle that one in the next podcast because Paul, you know, the, you'd imagine sort of the shadow is growing a little bit over his possibilities, especially with Augusto Fernandez finishing in the top ten. Yeah, Augusto is having a really. I mean, look, he, he's not setting the world on fire. But he doesn't need to. What he needs to do is just be keep improving. solid, keep improving, show progress, do it, you know, just keep on doing it. He's also extremely pleasant to work with. Everyone inside the team, everyone he works with, all of his sponsors, they all say he's fantastic. His family is fantastic. Um, he's a very well-spoken uh, young man. His English is outstanding. He has everything sort of, he has everything going for him. Paul is the better rider. Uh, but also Paul is getting towards the end of his career um, and uh, you know we, we know you know what you get with Paul there there is still an upside to Augusto Neil who is your pithy figure from the weekend um, Marco Bezzecchi I'm going to say similar um, to your loser ad in that it was a opportunity lost for the Italian um, he was pretty unfortunate you have to say because he, not just was he taken up by Ine Bestanini at the first turn um, but then in the restart, obviously, his um, he, he wasn't able to use his, his number one bike. He had to go to his number two bike. And what's more, um, I think he didn't have any more medium front tires left. And the, the medium front was definitely the, the tire of choice for the full race distance on Sunday. Um, so he had to go with a soft, and that was far from ideal. Um, he still did fairly well, considering he was on a soft front all race long. But 12th place... Um, yeah, wasn't it just was it was a difficult weekend for for Bez. I think one of his more difficult ones all all year. And um, also, he said he was feeling like he might have fractured something in his left hand, um, which it looked really swollen, which could be pretty disastrous, you know, going forward with such a, a, a huge amount of races in a, a short space of time. So, yeah, that would uh, that would be a more than an inconvenience, I think, for Bez. You know, third in the championship. Luckily, he needed his right hand to sign a new contract, so there's no issues on that aspect. But uh, finishing up things here on the podcast, we're going straight into Mazzano next week. Uh, It's going to be a completely different kettle of fish day when it comes to the asphalt. As we mentioned, there'll be much more grip, much many more bumps. Uh, The weather forecast, going by what we had in Barcelona, we can't really be sure of anything because we were due a lot of rain in Barcelona. It didn't appear, thankfully. So who knows what we're going to get in Mazzano. But, um, you know, considering the injury issues around three Italians and three Ducati riders, who who do you think we should be looking at? I mean, can Aprilia continue their run there? Yeah, possibly, yeah. I mean, b- normally you'd say Pecco Bagnaia, but, you know, Pecco is going to be feeling a little bit sore. Um, it should be a Ducati track. So, uh, yeah, it, it's... Luca Marini, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, or pick yeah. anyone from VR46 that yeah. you know use the place for training. Basically, pick any any of the Ducati in, uh, riders who who aren't injured and, and and got hurt in the crash. So, yeah, it's it's 
uh, difficult. It's not one of uh, Alicia's best uh, tracks, but Vinales was on the podium there last year. He was up there fighting with Bagnaia and Bastianini at the start of last year's race. Actually started well and had a really strong opening, but couldn't quite crack the, the sort of indomitable nut, which was Peko at that particular stage. Um, eventually fell back and finished third. But yeah, maybe Vinales. It could be another decent weekend for him. Um, it is very difficult to look beyond Aprilia and Ducati, though, I have to say. Um, you know, KTM, no. I mean, Miller's also been good at Mizano in the past. He has been good. Yeah, he, he was on pole last year, I think, crashed out in the first lap. Um, you know, it hasn't been a hasn't been a great track though, has it? But KTM have made a big step forward in in you know this year overall. Um, but uh, right, okay. So we're pretty much wrapping things up here. You know, for for the Grand Prix of Catalonia again. Not so much to to mention about Mizano, but we're going to be there. Neil, you're traveling on Wednesday, I believe. Dave, you're also going there pretty early. I'm traveling on Wednesday, but uh, uh, driving down to the track on Thursday. So um, and then staying on afterwards. Obviously, there's the test. That's going to be a yep. big, big deal, and uh, we'll see. Uh, uh, it's going to be worth people signing up to the note show for uh, uh, to the, our Patreon for the notes because I think we're going to learn a lot about the future of MotoGP. Uh, at Mizano. Well, in one way, yes, I completely agree with you. Another way, no, I don't think we can expect too much of the Japanese. Fabio Quattararo in his debrief yesterday was saying that Mizano is the starting point for the next six months. So what they can do by extended laps and testing there will feed into what they bring to perhaps Valencia in that short time frame and then on to, you know, Sepang next year. We're not going to learn about the bikes. What we're going to learn about is all the politics and all the rest of the stuff that's going on on, uh, on behind. The bikes aren't going to look a great, a great deal different, but what we will hear from people is uh, whether there are changes on the horizon because they will have to start working on those changes right now. Um, that's going to be the interesting part, not the actual physical machines which appear on Monday. Thanks for listening, guys. Any comments or questions, please send to X. Find us at Pad at Pass Pod. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back with our note show from Thursday in Mazzana.